Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, from Tampa. First, a look at an ultra-low-cost airline, Spirit, and a conversation with its CEO, Ted Christie, who has a few cost versus value surprises. Then, we'll get an update from the founder of ViewFromTheWing.com, Gary Leff, with one of the more outrageous and absurd passenger complaints you've ever heard. And then, from Tampa, a deep dive into the food scene, with Andrea Gonsmart, fifth-generation owner of the Columbia, a historic must-stop in Tampa. Followed by the hidden stories revealed by Fred Hearns, curator of Black History at the Tampa Bay History Center. First up, the CEO of Spirit, Ted Christie. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Ted, welcome. Hey, Peter. Good to be on. So, and welcome to Florida, by the way, the where we're the uh, hometown carrier, home state carrier, whatever you want to call it. I'm glad you're here. You are. 
Um, I want you to surprise me for a second. How many planes do you have right now in the fleet? We're almost at 200. That's pretty big. I mean, it's pretty big for an ultra-low-cost carrier. With your route network, most people don't realize that you're not just flying from, uh, you know, mid-cities to mid-cities. You're also flying to places overseas. You're flying to Bogota. You're flying to Lima. Uh, and, and, and all those other locations that people don't realize, you, you're, you're, you have a relatively growing international network as well. We do, yeah. We, we are proud um, of, of the development of the international side of our network. We serve the, all of the top 25 major metropolitan areas in the United States, uh, along with a number of mid-sized and small-sized cities. And then we have, a, as you mentioned, a, an ever-growing uh, presence in Latin America and the Caribbean, um, where we've been able to expand service, uh, deliver low fares to communities that really needed them, and uh, stimulate traffic both on the leisure side, traditional leisure, as well as you know, folks visiting their friends and relatives um, in and out of uh, the United States and down into those countries. I must say that recently I flew you guys from Nashville to Orlando. It was a nonstop flight on an A320. And uh, I have to tell you that the, uh, the plane was on time. You guys, I mean, it's interesting. When you take a look at on-time performance stats among U.S. airlines, you guys have done pretty well. Yeah, we've, we've put a lot of effort um, over the last five or six years in improving uh, the overall reliability of the product, and that's, that has delivered largely. Uh, and we're, we're usually solidly in the middle of the pack or maybe in the top half of the pack in on-time performance and, more importantly, uh, completion factor, which, is, which means you know cancellation rate is very low, and we know that's very important to our guests as well. So I'm glad you had a good experience. Uh, uh, and it was, sounds like it was on time. How was the onboard experience? Did you get to get a chance to sit in the big front seat? Or uh, yeah, or I want, yeah, I want, I want to talk to you about that. <laughs> and that is, give me, give me, no, seriously, give me the hit. I keep hearing rumors of how the big front seat happened. Um, is it true that that you just had seats on the plane that were it was too expensive to take them off? Well, there's some truth to that. Yes, you uh-huh. know, spirit uh, started back at, in the early '90s. Yeah, we were a traditional. Uh, two-class airline, so something you might expect on, on any kind of legacy airline where we had a first-class product, meaning a, 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 you know, a class of service that included certain things, and then they had a, a coach cabin behind it as well. And then when we made the transition in the 2000s to the ultra-low-cost model, uh, we were largely operating the smallest variant of the 320 family, which is the A319 aircraft. And we started putting more seats on the airplane, but got to the point where you couldn't put any more on, actually, because of the uh, the configuration of that airplane and the and the limitations. And so we were going to have to leave seats on the airplane, and we figured we might as well leave the the bigger front seats on there, the what were previously called first class seats. And we just decided to rebrand it and call it the big front seat, um, and treat it as a uh, a product that you that anyone could buy, rather than it being a class of service. It is a seat assignment. So if you buy a ticket on Spirit, you're still paying ultra low fares. And then you have the option uh, to buy that seat assignment um, along with any other seat on the airplane. And and that's, that's the origin of the product. And it has taken off. It is a very, very successful product for us. Um, Our guests love it. uh, And, and it is, it does set us uh, in a different class when you look at traditional ULCC models across the world. Well, you know, you talk about ULCC models, let's just say in the United States, you know, there's you, there's frontier, uh, there's Allegiant if, if you want to go that route, um, and some of the new entrants as well. But explain the model 
uh, because not everybody understands the model as, uh, the, that differentiates it from, let's say, one of the legacy carriers. Right. So the model starts with the idea that there is a significant number of people who um, uh, don't have the option to travel or are only able to travel uh, somewhat infrequently. And we wanted to create a product that stimulated additional traffic uh, around that kind of consuming group. And so we, we created a, a product that basically said you can travel at a very, very low introductory fare or fare uh, on board the airplane. And then you are allowed to customize your travel, uh, picking and choosing the things that are important to you. And the reason that we thought that was different and unique in the United States is because largely at that time, most carriers were, were what we now refer to as fully bundled. So you bought a ticket and it included all of your luggage options, all of your seating options, uh, any food options you had, uh, all of those things were sort of included in the ticket price. And that made it obviously homogeneous, but it, it we believe that it, it uh, selected out certain people who didn't want those things. For example, if you if you travel on an airline today that is fully bundled and you buy a ticket on them, but you're only carrying a carry-on bag, you're artificially subsidizing checked bag behavior for other people. Uh, because, you know, the price is the same. So we came up with this theory to say, let's unbundle all that and allow people to pick and choose. And that's what they do. So you, you buy a very low fare on Spirit. Want to buy a check bag? You can. If you don't, you don't have to. Uh, same goes for your carry-on bag. Same goes for your seat assignment. And that allows people to customize their experience and do it at a very affordable way. Uh, and we built the product up that way. Uh, we, um, we created a cost structure that allows us to be profitable at that level. Um, and so when people choose Spirit, they're doing so to save money. And the data kind of bears out that they usually save 20 to 30 percent uh, off of prevailing fares that were in the market before our entry. So, so it has been very successful. Uh, it does give people choice. It's obviously the product for our, for, for our group. Um, and what we find is that other airlines compete um, and they want to be able to, uh, to serve that group as well. So overall fares drop. And not only that, you're seeing now some of the ultra-low-cost carrier model being employed at some of the legacy carriers in terms of you, if you want another seat, you pay for it. Baggage, you pay for it. I mean, they're unbundling as well. Exactly. That, that's kind of the – that's what I was implied by compete. I mean, what, what we've proven is there is a market uh, for this product. I mean, I, Spirit was, was the introductory – you know, airline here in the United States back in the mid 2000s of doing this. And of course that was met with some skepticism and friction at the time. But what we proved is that people really did want it. And now you find that it's reinvented the way airline products are are marketed to people uh, across the board, whether you're uh, on Delta or you're on frontier or you're on us. And, um, and I think that that's a quite a democratic approach. You know, there's an interesting statistic that happened uh, that I learned about about two years ago, which really surprised me. And it was like something like 83% or 84% of anybody who flies American Airlines only flies them once a year. Is, that, that's sort of like the, the model you're following because, you know, I, I'm assuming you don't have a, a robust frequent flyer program. I'm assuming it's, it's people who fly because they need to fly or they're going to a family reunion or they're going to one event a year and they're going to pick you based on price. Well, I think the second half of your, um, your, your statement there is absolutely true. People are picking us based on price. And by the way, when surveyed, I had heard your, your data point before. I think American was the one who made that data right. point that yeah. that was 
which surprised us. Um, but, uh, but what we find is that no matter when you survey and no matter who you survey, 80 plus percent of people do choose based on price, regardless of who they're traveling on. I'm going to give you an idea of, of, of my takeaway from my flight the other day from Nashville to Orlando, Ted, on Spirit. Mm -hmm. My fare was $39. Now, I compared that with fares on competing airlines, most of which did not do nonstop. They were going through either Charlotte, Atlanta, or Dallas, and they were significantly higher fares. Now, I'm a member of their frequent flyer program, so, you know, as you can imagine, I'm addicted to those programs, as many people are. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the most innovative marketing concepts of the 20th century. But what I've come to grips with is normally I would have said, oh, I'll fly them because I'm going to get miles on a program I'm already a member of. And then what do I get for that? A cookie? And then my next question is, do I ever get a chance to redeem the miles? And right now, the proposition is not good uh, because all the flights are full and there are bazillions of miles out there that people haven't been able to redeem. So for me... I'm now going to have to readdress my membership in those frequent flyer programs based on the cost comparison and the product itself, simply because it was easier for me and certainly less expensive for me. I saved a lot of money, and uh, you know, and I have no th- no hope at all of being able to redeem those miles on the other airlines. I mean, that's been my experience, and I think we've reached a critical point in the airline frequent flyer programs. Maybe not yours, but with the other competing legacy carriers, where the actual redemption has become so difficult that, you know, there's a there's a revolution coming of people like me going, why am I doing this? You're laughing. <laughs> well, I think, uh, thanks for making, um, well, yeah, thanks for making our business case, by the way, Peter. I mean, you did an excellent job of laying out <laughs> um, uh, why we're so appealing. I'm going to bring you on board. You know, you can do our marketing. Course. Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the, yeah, the, um, the concept that you talk about is, is I would, I would distill it into two things. One is you're right. I mean, the, the marketing programs and the loyalty programs at all airlines are amongst the most profitable and successful loyalty programs in the world. And we do have one, by the way, that we, we are quite proud of and, and it is tailored to our type of guests. So how they accrue points and how they use them is is more specific to leisure travel than anything else. But I suspect that, you know, as airlines have increased load factor, you know, the availability of that inventory is becoming more difficult to get your hands on. So that is kind of one factor that may play out over the next decade or so as to how people think about their buying decisions. The second is, you know, the attractiveness of those loyalty programs is also largely attached to who's buying the ticket. So oftentimes, People are willing to travel on on more expensive products because someone else is paying for it, uh, their company, more likely. And what we find is that we do carry a lot of the same people on Spirit that other that travel on other airlines. It's just that in, the, in our instance, they're actually paying for it. Gee, what a so surprise! So when they go on the extra vacation, <laughs> yeah, and so people tend to vote with their wallet when it's more important. Um, and so that's why our product is so compelling. Is we are causing competition. It is real and definable. And the explosion in low fare travel is, is purely uh, a credit to what low cost carriers have done in the United States. So what you're basically saying is here, I'll help you with your marketing. If someone else is paying for your ticket, we don't care, go with them. <laughs> if you're paying for it, come with us. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I think that's largely true. And um, we know that um, our guests tell us that, um, that that's what's critical to them. Um, that, you know, look, if you're a family of four and you're saving for half a year for a trip to Orlando, uh, to take your kids to to Disney, what's most important to you is the experience when you get there. It's it's you know spending time at the park, it's spending time at uh, the hotel, it's going out to the the restaurants that you want to go out and and take your kids to see. 
And if you can save, you know, three or $400 round trip on your total travel experience and still get a, a friendly product and still get an on-time product, uh, then, you know, you're going to do that so you can afford to do a little bit more where you are. And that's, that's why economists refer to, you know, airline as transitory goods, meaning that they transportate you to, to where you eventually want to go. And Spirit has been following that, you know, for since the beginning. I'll give you a most recent example for me. I needed to go to Columbia recently and um, had accrued all these miles on Delta. And so I said, okay, how much for a round trip frequent flyer ticket? How many miles do I need to do that? And they came out with the most absurd figure I've ever seen. They wanted 500,000 miles. And, and I said, wow, let's see what I'm getting for that again. Because if 54% of all miles earned is earned on the ground, that means I would have spent about $280,000 for that ticket. And, and so I said, mm-hmm. then I could have gone with you, right? You, you, go, to, you go to Columbia. <laughs> I mean, and, and we do. I know. So get ready. I'm coming. <laughs> Okay. Well, I mean, you're no, but, welcome on board. I, mean, I can't wait to see it. No, but but seriously, with, with that kind of disconnect and outrageous redemption levels, I'm assuming you're going to have a lot more people flying you based on the fact that a they can't redeem their miles, and if they do, that the redemption levels are so high, and if they're paying for it, why wouldn't they come over to you? Well, the economics have borne out. I mean, I joined the airline 11 years ago. We had about 35 airplanes. We have almost 200 today. And um, that shows you the market explosion that we we believe existed uh, and have grown into that. And and by the way, the existence of other low cost and ultra low cost models have also grown um, or or created new. So so the market itself continues to expand. It creates competitive tension uh, with the prevailing big four airlines who still dominate the U.S. space. I mean, they're 80 plus percent of the capacity. So. If, if the low-cost carriers can have an impact on their fares, that's saving those people a lot of money, too. My thanks to Ted. There are valid passenger complaints, and you might think there are a lot of them. Guess what? There are. But then there are the absurd complaints, which come under the category of you really can't make this stuff up. Gary Leff has a report on what happened aboard one British Airways flight and what one passenger is complaining about. It's bizarre. Gary, welcome. You know, we talk about complaints, but there are two out there that got my attention in your column, which, by the way, I find fascinating every time I get it. But the one that almost takes the cake. No, I take it back. It takes the cake. It's the one that happened on British Airways recently on the flight from the UK, where uh, it was about, what, a seven and a half hour flight. The uh, the flight attendant served the first meal service in about, you know, maybe two hours into the flight. And then on many of these long-haul flights, there's usually a secondary sort of a snack service or a pre-arrival service. Why don't you run down? I mean, this one is unbelievable, uh, and you can't make it up. Why don't you run down what happened? Well, you know, the passenger was in an uh, unhappy mood because they had a a three-hour delay. And in fairness to British Airways, they offered uh, vouchers for people to get meals during the delay and whatnot. And they were flying from London to, to the Caribbean. They were headed to vacation. And um, about three hours before they were going to land, uh, they were asleep. And there was, you know, in this woman's words, commotion. And so they were woken up. And so she's unhappy with this. Well, it turns out that uh, there was a passenger on the flight who needed CPR. Uh, and so she was very distressed that CPR was being performed in the aisle. Uh, and the passenger died. And so this was all blocking the aisle. And the cabin crew could not offer that second meal service because they couldn't get down the aisle. 
And so she wanted compensation from British Airways, uh, both for two things. One, uh, that they didn't serve her the meal. And two, that it was, um, you know, unpleasant to have to watch this on their flight. Uh, oh so God. passenger died and they wanted British Airways to compensate them uh, for the for the poor experience. And in her words, look, she bought a ticket and that ticket included certain services, uh, including food. And they didn't get all the food they paid for. And neither did the passenger who died, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Furthermore, British Airways wasn't seeking compensation from that passenger. uh, And they were, uh, they certainly prefer that not to happen on the aircraft. Uh, But, you know, they chose to try to save a life instead of uh, passing out uh, sandwiches. Well, you know, under Good Samaritan laws, that would uh, take precedence over anything. This comes Mm -hmm. out of the category of what I call a bridge too far. I mean, look, you and I talk all the time, and we'll probably be talking in this segment or the next segment about things that airlines do that are either wrong or non-commonsensical or just abusive. This doesn't qualify as one of them. And anybody who would want to complain about an airline not giving them their second meal, by the way, have you eaten airline food lately? That alone could kill you. So, I mean, <laughs> the, 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 portion, the, the food's no good and the portions are too small. So the bottom line is, I certainly hope British Airways gives her absolutely nothing. And if she's listening to this program and she really wants to be uncomfortable, talk to me. This is wrong. It is just wrong. Okay, that's the first one. But we're not. Oh, it was even better. It was even better. I forgot because British Airways refused to continue communicating with this woman because they didn't find it a reasonable request. So she took to social media to ask people how to get their attention to make them give her compensation. That did not go well for her. No, because she got my attention. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. All right, but wait a minute. We're just getting started, right? Because there's the LL situation. So, so a lawsuit has been filed in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of New York, uh, and this was filed about a week and a half ago. Uh, no, a little more than that. Uh, anyway, the uh, uh, a man who was flying from uh, Tel Aviv to New York uh, in business class was injured after getting stuck in one of the business class seats. The flight attendant had to pull him free of his seat after he got stuck, and he says that this hurt him. And it's the airline's fault because cabin crew had, quote, from his lawsuit, failed to explain to him how the seat operates. So as far as I can tell, maybe this was the man's first time sitting. Um, he didn't understand his seat, and it was the airline's fault. All right, so let me ask you a really stupid question here, okay? Even with the new advanced seats in business class, or even in coach, last time I looked, it was recline and upright. And if you're in a business class seat, you might even push the button and it extends to a bed. How does that injure you? Well, he, he claims great, quote, great pain, agony, and mental anguish. Um, but it seems to me, that once again, there's a certain obligation that you have as a passenger. In this case, I think, if you do not understand how to get up from a seat, you might press the flight attendant call button and ask. Right. And if you get trapped, that's kind of on you. And the flight attendant <laughs> was trying to help. Right. Oh my and God. so you sue them. Once again, good Samaritan laws ought to protect them here. Then there's something called truth in advertising and failure to disclose at the same time. You and I both have talked about this on the air many, many times. 
about the long-standing U.S. Department of Transportation rule that says that if an airline cancels your flight for any reason whatsoever, and that, by the way, applies to any airline flying to, from, or within the United States, that you're entitled to an immediate and full refund, even in cash, or back to your original form of payment, no questions asked. Now, we all know what happened during the pandemic. Not every airline was very, very good at volunteering this information and was often steering passengers to either, you know, uh, credits or vouchers that would expire and maybe of no use to them, resulting basically in an interest free loan to the airline. But now something else has happened, hasn't it? So I was buying a ticket from United Airlines on their website and I noticed something during the checkout process. It's very common for airlines to try to sell travel insurance while you're checking out. Uh, These are very high margin products. They pay big commissions to the airline. And, you know, I don't sell it myself, but, you know, I've been offered as much as 50% commission on, you know, travel insurance. And it really depends. Travel insurance can be a good product, but you have to be careful about who you're buying it from and what the terms are. So uh, they have a policy that was being fished as follows. It says, you know, you should buy bad weather can cause flight cancellations. Add valuable coverage for your flight. The plan includes coverage if your flight gets canceled. Reimbursement up to 100% of ticket costs. So for, in my case, $22.87, I could get reimbursement if United canceled my flight for weather. But I can get reimbursement from United if they cancel it for weather anyway. Why should I have to pay extra for that? Now, uh, this is you know from AIG, not United. Although generally insurance coverage is going to be secondary anyway, uh, where they're not going to want to pay when the uh, airline pays uh, first. So it, it seems like an odd, uh, you know, an odd pitch and a disingenuous one. Now, it also offers payment for trip delay or if you miss your flight, as long as you meet qualifying conditions. It could be something that's valuable to some passengers, but the way it is being sold is if you want uh, reimbursement. If United cancels your flight and weather happens, uh, you need to pay up more, which is simply not true. And there you have it again. You know, and I've said this so many times on the air, and you just mentioned it. If you're going online to make an airline ticket reservation, you can't complete the transaction unless you either opt in or opt out for the insurance. And you, you do, and many people do it because they think it's it's a, it's a good idea. That's well intentioned. Uh, it gives them peace of mind. But they're doing so blindly because you have no idea what you're covered for, and worse. You have no idea what you're not covered for. And then this comes from United Airlines, which is offering you coverage, which basically you already get because it's a U.S. Department of Transportation rule. Yee. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that one. And now more of our listeners know what to do or even more appropriately, what not to do. And now we come to the other area up here for the prices right today, and that is hotel housekeeping. When did this become optional? That's my question. When did this become an add-on? I understand during the pandemic with staffing shortages across the board in every aspect of the service industry, but we're beyond that now. And what makes everybody think that now we have to change what we've come to expect as part of something that, that is contained in our hotel room rate, which is housekeeping? So interestingly, right, I mean, hotel owners like spending much less on housekeeping, you know, hiring fewer housekeepers and paying them less. And they um, liked the fact that they were able to do that during the pandemic. You know, it was staffing shortages, but it was also people early on really didn't like, you know, people coming into their room. We didn't know how the virus spread. There weren't vaccines and treatments yet. And it, and it was and it was a very scary time for a lot of people. Uh, and so they say, now, look, you know, in the you know, mid scale and upper mid scale uh, brands, you know, the non luxury hotels, we want to give you the power of choice. Of course, you already had the power of choice. You tell the hotel you don't want someone coming into their room and they'll skip you. 
I don't want housekeeping today. Great, no worries. How many how many decades have there been uh, cards on the back of the door handles? You know, where do not disturb, right? Stick that on your door handle uh, and, and you can communicate that. You already have a choice. So now it becomes an opt-in. And when you opt-in, they do less service than before in many cases. All they're going to do is uh, make the bed with the existing sheets, not change the sheets. Uh, maybe they'll replace towels and you know, empty trash. And that's about it. You know, they call it a refresh rather than you know, housekeeping service. Well, that, you know, doing less and making you ask for it means that fewer people get it done because you don't pick up the phone or you forget. You don't stand in line at the front desk as opposed to having it automatically. You know, less, you know, and they spend less time on each room. But the more difficult they can make it to get you to request it, the less they're going to spend. <laughs> the uh, Hyatt Regency at the Orange County Airport has an interesting one. They require that you uh, put towels that you want to have changed into a bag and then fill out a form. Oh, boy. List is specifying the towels that you want to have replaced. So you may put them in a the bag, but you may not get more if you don't check the right box. <laughs> My thanks to Gary. Now, I don't go to Tampa without making a stop at the Columbia. It's one of the great historic restaurants in America. And in Tampa, it's an institution. Andrea Gonsmart knows all about the Columbia. Her great-grandfather started it after he emigrated from Cuba in the 1800s. And the cool thing about the place is what hasn't changed. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs. A gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. It's not just any kitchen. It's not just any restaurant. I believe it's the largest dining room on the planet. Well, it's the largest Spanish restaurant. And I think in the world, we're the oldest restaurant in the state of Florida. We've got a few different titles. Okay. Her name, by the way, is Andrea Gonsmart. And the name of the restaurant would be The Columbia. Yes. It's, it's just The Columbia. That's how I call it. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. You got it. Now, the last time I saw you when I was in your kitchen, we were doing what? You, you, your patented deviled eggs. You had those. Yes, our famous deviled eggs. You were helping me out with that. Yes, I know. And nobody got sick, so that was good. And, <laughs> yes. But, I mean... Your portions are huge. Your signature dish is? Well, we've got quite a few signature dishes. One of my favorites, it's the, the paella. It's the yeah. national dish of Spain. It's almost a, it's a must when you go to the Columbia. Now, when we talk about 1905, that's really, that's when it opened. That was when we were founded. Actually, we found out we were founded in 1903 when we were celebrating our 100th anniversary. So we had good and bad news that we'd missed our 100th anniversary, <laughs> but that we were, in fact, over 100 years old. And in the same family. Yes, same family. My great-great-grandfather founded it. So you're fifth generation. Fifth generation caretaker. 
<laughs> Working on the sixth generation at home. All right. So now, how many people can fit into that restaurant? We have 1,700 seats. Oof. So, and, and, and you better have a reservation. Always recommended. Or you better get there right when the doors open at 11. And people do. They do. I bet you have people who come in there and, never, and just sit at the bar and never leave. I've been known to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but what's the history of the restaurant itself? So my great-great-grandfather immigrated from um, Cuba back in the early 1900s. He was working at the Florida Brewery there in Ybor City. And back then, the brewery used to help people open saloons so they could sell their beer. Kind of ingenious. Wow. What a concept. So he opened the Columbia Saloon in 1903, which was actually across the street from the restaurant where the restaurant is now. Um, 1905 was where we still exist. Um, and now we encompass a whole city block. We've got 15 dining rooms. And obviously, we've grown... <laughs> Far beyond just a saloon. So if you hear somebody yell paella on, li on aisle six, you know. <laughs> clean up. As long as they're not clean saying up, clean, up clean up on up. aisle six. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, you mentioned he emigrated from Cuba. Mm. I mean, there's so much of a Cuban influence still yes. in, in Tampa, but especially where you are, because not far from there, I believe, is the only piece of land still owned by the Cubans you are very right. Am I right? Yes, there is a small gated-in courtyard that is owned by the Cuban um, government, from what I understand. You know, and the really cool thing about Ybor City is it represents all of those different heritages that came yeah, yeah, to Ybor. Yeah, the German club there. Yeah. we got the Germans, the Italians, the Spaniards, the Cubans. It's a, it's a Cuban sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and you have the cigars. Yes, and of course the cigars. And the cigar factories are what so many of those immigrants came to Ybor to do. To roll cigars and, and try to begin and make a new life for them. When people come to Tampa, um, and I always like to say this, you know, they, okay, they're going to go to Burns, right? And, and they're going to go to the wine cellar, which is pretty amazing. Absolutely. Right? I mean, that's... It's a must. That, you got to just see it. You got... And they have actually tours during dinner if you want to go see it. Yes. Uh, and of course, if you're on a first date, you know, that's... Everybody goes on a first date, right? Oh, it's inevitable. Yeah. All right. Well, you and I can't talk about that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> We're taken. But the thing is, uh, okay, there's Burns, and, there's, and then there's Columbia. Those, those are the two things you got to go see, well, right? Not as an that. attraction, but as an experience. I think so, you know, and, and I feel quite honored to be named with the Burns family, the Laxer family. Um, but I think we both are Tampa institutions. We've been here for so long. The fact that we're still family-owned, that we're still a go-to spot for our locals and for visitors speaks volumes. Now, of course, it's there's the old saying that if it's not broken, don't fix it. So certain things stay on the menu will never leave, right? That's true. Right? The paella, de the deviled eggs, right? Anything else? Um, the devil crab, not deviled eggs. Okay. <laughs> I got it. But then, are you doing anything different now? You know, ever since we um, reopened from COVID, our menus actually become smaller. Um, we did not bring everything back. We still have our famous 1905 salad, of course, the Cuban sandwich. There are a few items that rotate out. We love to do our weekly specials to bring back some of those old items that haven't come back or items that have never been on the menu. So there are always options to try something different. But the bottom line is the staples are the staples. The staples are the staples and you can't change them. And if you're like me, uh, you also, uh, this is so s silly of me, but 
you sell the, you sell the pitchers and the, and, and the bowls. Yes. And, and I had to buy them. I had to get them. Did you buy it or did I give it to you? No, no. I bought two of them and, sell it, and oh. the two showed up. Well, they're uh, beautiful. I mean, uh, it's almost a shame to not take them home with you. And so many people will tell me, you know, I've got one of these pictures and I don't know how old it is. And I joke, well, count how many Columbias are on there. And that can tell you how old it is because we used to put the locations on there. All right. So now let's go outside the restaurant, right? I can only eat at your restaurant so many times, okay? So where, other than the Columbia, where are you taking me for breakfast? Where are you taking me for lunch? And where are you taking me for dinner? Well, you know, it's almost kind of a trick question. Am I taking you to my other concepts? No, you're not. <laughs> well, you know, breakfast can be a tough one here in Tampa. Um, you know, if I'm not eating at home for breakfast, I'm honestly going to Goody Goody, which is our, our burger breakfast joint that we have. You know, Tampa is growing so much. There are so many great new restaurants that are breaking out that I still haven't even gotten to them. It depends on what, you mood, what you're in the mood for. And if you feel like being outside, of course, you know, right now the weather's beautiful. When it gets a little bit warmer, dining outside isn't great. And you have St. Petersburg right across the pond too, which has got so many great options. Now, do you get out in the water at all? Yes, I was actually out on the water this past weekend. I live on the Hillsborough River, so I jumped right on the boat. We scooted over to the St. Pete Pier and, and got a bite to eat down there. See, that's the cool thing. If you have a boat or you have, no, even better, if you have a friend with a boat that's the best way to have it right well my rule is is if my husband wants me to go I do nothing my daughter and him do all the work right but if but for everybody else if you know somebody with a boat now you're golden because they're doing all the work anyway just right? bring the ice and bring the beer right and you can actually do it like a, a, a pub crawl on the river that is one of our most favorite things to do because there are so many options now you know thankfully we've got that beautiful river walk and with that came lots of places but can i give you a little bit of history of my history in tampa when they first opened that stuff the definition of sauteed was deep fried <laughs> It was. That still exists, though. I, I know. <laughs> but, I mean, you know what I'm saying. Yes. Right? So it took a while for people to, to up their game. Yes. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we I saw a sign in a restaurant. It wasn't here. It was actually in Fort Myers. And they and the, the, it wasn't a little sign. It was about a seven-foot sign in, 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 the, in, the, in the bar. It says, if it's not fried, it's not food. <laughs> Sounds like something my daughter would say. <laughs> I, have you talked to her recently? <laughs> but, I mean, have dining habits changed since COVID? Um, I think people's expectations, especially in the Tampa Bay area, have really risen. Um, especially with that whole Michelin buzz in Florida, which is super exciting. People definitely expect more, especially when they're on the water or they're walking along the river walk. They're not going to settle. But the thing is, are they changing their expectations? Are they changing the price point? Are they changing what they're really looking for? I mean, I think people, when they come to Florida, are looking for the seafood. They want to see that. They want to see the fresh oysters. They want to have the craft cocktails. You know, our, our expectations have definitely risen, which so I think is great. So with enough craft cocktails, it doesn't matter about the oysters. That's the way I feel. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, it's interesting. What we're seeing is... What COVID did is it really confronted a lot of people with their own mortality, mm -hmm. right? And so it changed their approach to travel. It changed their approach to eating. It changed because they're saying, oh, I'm not, the hell with the bucket list. I'm going to do it now, right? Absolutely. You know. Because you never know. I mean, who would have expected that we were going to be shut down for two months, you know, telling us we can't go anywhere. The minute our doors opened up here in Florida, everyone got out. We were so excited to get out well, and listen, enjoy Well, listen, Florida it. opened up a lot earlier than a lot of other places. So fortunate for that. Which meant you had a lot of people moving down here and then staying down here. That is a very true statement. Okay, so I got to ask the big bad question that I have to ask. During the pandemic, so many people in the service industry left. Right, they reassess their jobs, their life, their location, their income, and said, "Okay, I'm out of here." 
You saw it in the hotel industry. You saw it in the restaurant industry, especially. What was your staff issue like? So we are still shorthanded. When we closed, we did everything we could to take care of our employees. We were feeding them twice a week. We developed an employee relief fund so we could try to relieve them financially. We were fortunate enough to get the PPP so we could continue to pay them. Um, But inevitably, like you said, people did not come back. Um, And it took a very long time for us to finally get to the decent place that we're in. But then it was a beautiful thing because we saw so many of our long-term employees that came back and that are still with us. And then we created a, you know, please refer someone, you know, and we had to get creative. And you know what? We had to start operating smarter. And that's part of why we still have a more limited menu because it's easier for our back of the house staff. It gets down also to a definition of terms about what the job is. You know, if you and I were to go to dinner tonight in Italy, that waiter doesn't look at that as his job. He looks at it as his profession. It's a career in Europe. And maybe his father did it before him. You go to a restaurant today in New York, the waiter is an out-of-work actor waiting for a call. You're very right. So all of a sudden you have a disruption in the system. And and, and, what what am I doing here? it's It's not my passion. I'm leaving. Right? You need people to be passionate. Absolutely. You know, and working at the Columbia is no easy feat because we do lots of table side service. The restaurant is a whole city block, like I had said before. So it takes a special person. So basically in your employee uh, form, it says you're going to get your steps in. Absolutely. At least (laughs) (laughs) 10,000. Did you measure any time? Have you measured? That's probably a good exercise, but no, I haven't. I bet bet you might be surprised. (laughs) It's a lot of steps. But it's, it's, it's it's an experience. Absolutely. No, when you walk through the doors of the Columbia, no matter what dining room you're in, it is an experience. And and I hope that through all of our staff, it is conveyed to our guests. Um, Do you you have a double secret dining room? We do have a couple of old hideaways that we are not allowed to use, though, because there is only one way in and one way out. And my father has been trying to find a loophole to be able to bring them back. It's called fire codes. Yeah, Yeah. those darn things that keep us safe. My thanks to Andrea. There's a lot of Tampa history that few people know about or even embrace. But Fred Hearns knows, and he talks about the lost history, and most importantly, how he's bringing it back. Fred Hearns, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Glad to be here. So, would you agree that most people, first of all, have no clue? Most people really don't know very much Tampa history, and especially when you talk about black history in Tampa. And I'm talking about people who grew up here, natives, uh, as well as young folk and people who moved here from other areas. Well, listen, you talk about natives. How many people in in New York City have never even visited the Statue of Liberty? They (laughs) they have no clue. They see it. They sort of know about it. But no, it's, it's, you know, the one thing the pandemic allowed people to do in their own cities is to rediscover their own cities. I'm sure that happened here, too. Absolutely. And what we know is that by doing tours, and I did black history tours for over 13 years, bus tours as well as walking tours. And people were just amazed to learn some of the uh, history of this area. Things, as you mentioned, that they've seen for their whole lives, but they never really knew the background. They couldn't connect the dots. Exactly. Or why certain things are named for certain people. Uh, What happened here 100 years ago that influenced what we see today. So, I love telling these stories about Tampa's history. You know, when you hear the traditional Tampa history, you hear about the Cuban immigrants and the Germans and, you know, all the people who came here to do this sort of a, this, this melting pot, but you don't necessarily hear about African-Americans. 
The first blacks who came to Tampa primarily were enslaved. And we're talking about all the way back to 1528 when the Spanish explorers came. And for the most part, they brought Africans with them uh, who they owned on those ships. Was there a slave market here? There was not a slave market here. There was not a big presence of, of slaves being bought and sold and yeah. slave people. But it did happen on a small scale. Right, but they were here. Absolutely, they were here and helped make this city what it is today. So if I'm driving down certain streets in Tampa, you're going to tell me what the signs mean. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> what would be the biggest surprise? I think Central Avenue, which maybe some people heard a little bit about, but all of the amazing things that happened on that boulevard, because it was not just a street. It was the heart of the black community for close to 100 years, from the 1890s until the 1970s. And people would be amazed at the world-known entertainers who got their start here. And a lot of the early entrepreneurs, we did have a few black millionaires here in Tampa. I think that would surprise some folks. Well, what surprised me is when we did our piece in Tulsa uh, for, for our television show, it was a story that had been suppressed for 100 years which was Black Wall Street, and then how they burned it down. It was a massacre. When, when, when the blacks who were living there were doing so well, the whites couldn't handle it. And they literally killed people, burned it down, and they're just now getting to a point of reconciliation and remembrance. But first, got to tell the story. Right. And that's your job. you got to tell the story. Exactly. During Reconstruction, uh, after the Civil War in the 1870s and 1880s, People would be surprised to know that much of what we know today as downtown Tampa was owned by black folk who got land grants and homesteaded much of that property after the Civil War. And I think that would really surprise a lot of folk. And we have very little evidence of that today. The one example that I can point to is the Fortune Taylor Bridge. Uh, some people may know that story. Uh, this lady owned 33 acres of downtown property. That ain't bad. Exactly. And we know the Strass Center, for example, is located on land that at one time this formerly enslaved black woman owned. But very few people would know the name Fortune Taylor had it not been for the name being transferred to the bridge. That's our only real connection on a day-to-day -day basis. And there are many other examples. Now, you grew up in Tampa. Yes. You're a Tampa native. Right. So you have seen all the changes. Exactly. But you, when you were growing up, was there any focus at all on black history? Not really, not in the schools, uh, not even that much in the churches. Uh, I mean, we lived it, but we didn't teach it. We didn't uh, put it in the form where we could study it. And so it was not part of a lesson plan. I never had a class on black history until I got to college. Well, you yeah. never had a class on black history because when you were growing up, you were the, you were the black <laughs> we history. We were making it, exactly. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. But what's the, what, what is the biggest surprise for people? when they come to the museum, when they have a chance to learn these stories? What, what, what are they not expecting? Well, let me say what is coming, because uh, beginning in June this year, we'll have a brand new permanent exhibit open, uh, Travails and Triumphs. Travails and Triumphs, Traces of the History of Black People in the Tampa Bay Area uh, from the 1500s up until the present day. I think it's really going to amaze some people about the things that happened uh, in the early 1900s, for example, where we had a lot of black entrepreneurs. In spite of Jim Crow, there were a lot of people who were able to make a good living for themselves, to be philanthropists, to help others. 
uh, living in a segregated world, and that's the world I grew up in. Yep. That, listen, I remember it well. I mean, I you know my parents were actually marching in the freedom. They were in the free, my parents were freedom mm. writers. You know, they the core. Mm-hmm. You know, that was in the early '60s. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's that was the era in which I was a kid, growing up and learning about it. Right. It took a while to put it all in perspective. Right. But that's part of what your job is, is to put it in perspective. Right. We do have one person who's featured in the museum today, and that's Bob Saunders. Bob Saunders grew up in Tampa. He became the field secretary for the NAACP for the state of Florida. And he held that position for 14 years. His office was right here in Tampa. But he traveled all over the state organizing NAACP branches, getting people registered to vote. It was very dangerous work. His predecessor and his wife and daughter were killed with a dynamite blast that we believe the KKK was responsible for in Mims, Florida. That's the man Bob Saunders replaced. So he was, he was one of my heroes. I got to know Bob pretty well during his lifetime. Wow. And he held that job for 14 years. Yeah. And voter registration in the 60s and 70s isn't voter registration today. No, it was very dangerous work. Uh, people were targeted for extermination if they were involved in that. A Tampa native who was uh, hasn't lived here for a while, but uh, Dr. Bernard Lafayette grew up in Ybor City. He went to American Baptist College. He was the roommate of John Lewis, who became Congressman John Lewis. And they uh, helped form SNCC. They worked together for many, many years. Uh, he is currently teaching in Atlanta. He comes back here every February. We have an award named for him, Bernard Lafayette. But, but he know, was the, right in the middle of that struggle. But, you know, the, the bottom line with everything you do, it gets down to storytelling. Right. It gets down to and handing down those stories so that they don't get lost. My thanks to Fred, to Gary Leff, to Andrea Gonsmart, and to Ted Christie. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the other breaking travel news, you know what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com/survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.